Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look again at this same text that we've been looking at since the year began. And the title of our series is Keeping the Balance. We're looking at seven balance points of life, seven balance points of the Christian life that's given to us in the Word of God in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 8 is what we'll end up reading today. And today we're looking at the balance point of steadfastness. Though I've never experienced it, I am told that it's common for runners and athletes of an endurance sport to hit the wall as they push themselves past the comfort level. Here's how the long-distance runner Dick Beardsley describes it. He says, it felt like an elephant had jumped out of a tree onto my shoulders and, I, and was making me carry it the rest of the way in. Hitting the wall is a very real physical condition. The way that happens is once the carbohydrates and the hydration are diminished, the body just wants to stop. The body just wants to, to quit. It burns out of energy. It becomes so tired it, it can't go forward. The day before the Boston Marathon, an article in, some years ago, an article in Harvard Health predicted what would happen to thousands of runners. Here's what it said. About 27,000 runners begin the annual 26-mile, 385-yard mass run from suburban Hopkinton to Boston. But if past marathons in Boston and elsewhere are any indication, perhaps up to 40% of these optimistic and determined souls will slam into a sudden sensation of overwhelming, can't-do-this, fatigue several miles, typically about five, before they get a chance to experience the glory of crossing the finish line. What is true for the body is also true for the soul. It's also true for the spirit. Sometimes in our spiritual lives, we hit a wall. Sometimes in our spiritual walk, we hit this wall and we say, I can't do this anymore. We feel like an elephant has jumped on our back. We become so spiritually fatigued that we're just too tired to go on, or so we think. Even for the saved, life is an endurance race. It's not a sprint. It's an endurance race, and every single one of us will hit the wall. You may say, well, I won't, but you will. Well, I haven't, but you have. And you will probably hit a wall again. One of the seven balance points given to us in 2 Peter 1 is that of being steadfast. In the King James Version, it calls it patient, but it means steadfastness, determined, and staying with it. 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1 and verse uh, 5, or should I say in honor of one of our presidential candidates, 2 Peter uh, 1 and verse 5. Later on, we'll read from 2 Corinthians. <laughs> I, that was a little unpleasant, wasn't it? I'm so sorry. Not really. <clears throat> For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge 
and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this moment, this morning, I want to share with you three simple additions that we must have in our lives, or three simple ingredients that we must have in our lives if we're going to be steadfast, if we're going to push through the wall, if we're going to be able to to last beyond the, the discouragement and the greater discouragement. Here's the first one, foundation. There must be a foundation in our lives. Foundations are not created equal. Not all foundations are the same, whether they are foundations for buildings or the foundations of people. They're just not equal. Some people seem like they can take anything that's thrown their way. You know people like that? I mean, just wave after wave after wave of hard and difficult and impossible situations and circumstances and attacks come to their lives and they just continue on. Then there are other people who tremble at even the slightest issue. There's some people that they fall at far less than those who are, have more foundational material, it seems. What's the difference? What is the difference in people? Why is it that this person here can be so strong during such difficult circumstances, and this person over here says, I just can't do this with something that's far less? Well, sometimes there are physical differences. Sometimes because of the physical makeup of someone, they have difficulty. Sometimes there are emotional issues. But beyond that, how does a person get and keep the kind of foundation that allows him or allows her to be steadfast, to push through the wall, to continue on? Well, Jesus spoke to this in a parable in Matthew seven twenty four. He said, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now, there are three foundational truths that we can learn from this parable, three things that we ought to get from this parable. First of all, in understanding the foundation of our life, we have to know that there's a price. There's always a price. And we have to decide whether or not we're going to pay that price. Luke 24 and verse uh, 14 and verse 28 says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? You know, there's a big difference between a castle and a sand castle. I've seen some pretty magnificent sand castles on the internet, things that people have built, and you think, my goodness, that's great. But you know what? All it takes is the wave to come in. And that castle is gone. It's greatly diminished with the first wave, and eventually it's completely eroded. Do you know someone who has never been able to pay the price 
for building a life that makes a difference. Do you know someone who just can't get the foundation right? They can't, they will not pay the price. They are flighty, but there's no flight pattern. They go from here to there and up and down and and all around. If you want to be steadfast in your walk, there must be a foundation. And let me tell you about a foundation. A foundation takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. You can't be careless about the foundation or everything else is going to go away at some point. Think about it like this. Building a home requires a lot of patience and a lot of planning. You have to know what kind of soil that you're on. And you have to know what kind of foundation you need for that particular soil. Sometimes you're on rock. And that requires a certain kind of foundation if you're building on a rock. Sometimes you're building on rocky soil. That's the way it was for us in Tennessee. We had rocky soil, and that too requires a certain kind of work. In Florida, you mainly build in sandy areas. And here in Tallahassee, we have something known as pipe clay. You really have to make extra preparation for the foundation in in Florida simply because of the, the soil. Reality is you can do your very best and, and try your very best only to have a sinkhole open up and take half, if not all, of your house. All the research and work needed to make sure that you're building on the right soil using the right foundation gives you the assurance that your house is not likely to break and your heart is not likely to break. Still, there are times when good houses built well do break, but if you test your foundation first and have the right kind of foundation and pay the price for the right foundation, it's less likely that your foundation will break. So it is in our lives. We must have the right foundation. We must have the foundation that will allow us to stand and withstand everything. Earlier I said to you that everyone here has a story. You can look around and everybody here has a story. And in that story, there are some delightful moments and there are some devastating moments. In that story, everybody's story. How do you build a foundation that withstands the story? How can you make it? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so there it is. The price for a solid foundation is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ paid the price that we might have him as a foundation in our life. And let me just tell you, if you do not have Jesus as foundational in your life, it's not because the price hasn't been paid for you to have him. It's because you have decided that you would leave that foundation and build somewhere else or build on something else. Understand this, that no matter what foundation you build on, whether you decide to build on sand or whether you build on the solid rock, understand that regardless of where you build, there will still be the peril. That too is found in that parable that we read. In the parable that Jesus gave of the two houses, 
One was built on the rock, the other was built on the sand, but both of them had a common factor. And you know what? The storm came to both of them. Didn't matter. Bad weather came to both of them. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, and both houses felt the brunt of it. This is one of the issues that I've got with a lot of the the feel-good, you're good, I'm good, everybody's good, it's always going to be good preaching in this world today because it's not always going to be good. There's going to be some rough times. You do not have to be a Christian very long before you come to realize that it does not remove you from the reality of life. Life happens, excuse me, life happens to everyone. Everyone, Christians and unbelievers, are going to have issues of life. We're going to have health issues. All of us are. It's a reality. I was thinking today about getting a little older. I'm a little older, just a little older than I used to be. And I was thinking, I wonder if anybody else can be in the bedroom doing something and right in the middle of it forget what they were doing. I wondered if anybody else has a hard time getting the motor running after they've sat in one position too long. Life comes. Life happens. We're all going to have health issues. We're all going to have family problems. Now, when you get married, you set out to be married. I saw <clears throat> where one of our students, who is a, uh, was a standout on the Clemson football team, <clears throat> made a proposal to his girlfriend, uh, a proposal of marriage, and it showed him at the, uh, the black tie uh, event for the football team at the end of the year. And, of course, Clemson has done very, very well, and this guy was one of the captains of the team, <clears throat> and, it, and showed him on one knee in front of uh, the dais and, and his girlfriend in front of him, he was giving her a ring asking her to marry him. Now I want to tell you something. Their plan is to live happily ever after. Their plan is to have a wonderful family. <clears throat> Their plan is to have all bright, sunshiny days. But I'll tell you this, when you commit to a family, when you commit to a marriage, then there will be storms And there will be problems. And I want to just say something about that. If you're having a storm or a problem in your marriage, so often people run away from God's house and God's people when they're having a storm. Please don't do that. I'm going to make you a personal offer. I am am not the wisest of men. However, I can point you to wise people. If you have an issue in your family, if you have an issue in your marriage, if you're having an issue in your life, please contact me. I'm your pastor. I'm your friend. Please let me help you. Please please say, you know what? I can talk to pastor. If If I can't talk to anybody else, I can talk to Pastor Ray about it. Please do that. I may or may not be able to help you, but at least it's something. But here's the reality. You're going to have a problem in your family. All of us do. We're going to have financial reversals. We're going to have times when, oh my goodness, 
this problem happened and that problem happened and, and we ran out of paycheck before we ran out of needs for the paycheck. Or trouble at work and on and on. <clears throat> Here's the reality. Bad news is bad news. Whether you know Jesus or do not know Jesus. But if you know Jesus, bad news has a foundation that you can deal with. If you know Jesus, bad news has a, has a basis from which you can operate. You have to have a foundation. If you're going to have a foundation, you've got to pay the price for it. The price has really been paid in Jesus Christ. Then you pay the price of walking with him and learning of him and knowing him so that when the, the inevitable peril comes, you'll have a, a basis to deal with the peril. And that will produce for you the product. In the parable of Jesus, one house fell and fell hard, and the other stayed strong. It didn't fall. It did not give way. That house was the one that was built on the rock. That was the house that stood. Now, I sometimes think of this, and I really do, in just the opposite way. And, and you'll understand what I mean. We have a man who's in our church who is one of the best, if not the best, roofer in Tallahassee. Some of you already know who I'm talking about as soon as I said that. <clears throat> he's, if he's not the best, he's certainly one of the best roofers in Tallahassee. He's not the cheapest roofer in Tallahassee, but he is the best roofer in Tallahassee. And if you have a shingle roof on your house and you stay there any length of time, you're going to have to replace that roof. It's going to have to be replaced. Now, my house is a great house. Lived in that house ooh, almost 20, let's see, 23 years <clears throat> lived in that house. It was built by a man sitting in this auditorium right now, Aubrey Mayo. Aubrey doesn't <clears throat> build houses for people anymore, but he, did, he built a great house for me. You couldn't ask for a better house. However, the house is now 23 years old. So a few years ago, Aubrey, you know what happened? You start seeing the roof deteriorate just a little bit. <clears throat> and I knew that I was going to have to replace my roof. Every time a big rain came, I'd be like this. Because I thought, is this the day that one of those shingles is going to give way? Is this the day? And I'd get a little nervous. So there came a time a few years ago that I contracted with this roofer in our church to put a roof on my house, and he did. I think I've told you about the roof that he put on my house. He put this roof on my house, and you know what happens now? We have these big rains. We have these big storms. I just smile. I sit in my house, and I say, come on, no problem." not an issue because I know that the best roofer in town protected my house. Now that's kind of the opposite view of the foundational issues that we're talking about, but the principle is the same. Even better than that roof I've got, I have a foundation that allows me to weather the storms that come to my life. And trust me, they do come and they have come and there will never be a time when something isn't brewing and the rain isn't ready to fall again, but his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. 
And you say the same thing. The product, the benefit of a solid foundation on Christ is the ability to remain steadfast in the trials of life. It takes more than a foundation, though. Here's a second word in order to be steadfast. This is going to surprise you a little bit. I think every life needs a little indignation. We need a foundation to stand on. and We need a little indignation to live by. Let me ask you this. Have you ever noticed that a chicken doesn't have teeth? I mean, I doubt that any of you have close personal relationships with chickens, but chickens do not have teeth. How do they chew their food? Well, they have a gizzard. And the gizzard is why chickens do not need teeth. It is a muscular part of the stomach, and it uses grit. I always love to give these agriculture illustrations when the former commissioner of agriculture for the state of Florida is sitting back there. And I would appreciate a good amen once in a while, commissioner, if you don't mind, on these agriculture things. But this gizzard is a muscular part of the stomach and uses grit, which is small hard particles of pebbles or sand to grind the grains and the fiber into smaller, more digestible particles. This is where the saying comes from, you need a little sand in your gizzard. And if you've not heard that, that's a really good saying that you need to take up today. You need to tell people you need a little grit. You need a little sand in your gizzard. We can't build on the sand, but every believer needs a little sand in their gizzard. As John Wayne would say, true grit. I like to think of this as indignation. We all need a little bit of indignation in us. To be steadfast, there must be a sense of right and a sense of drive within us that says we're going to do the right thing. We're going to stand for the right thing. We're going we're to march toward the right thing. We will withstand the wrong and stand for the right. That's the indignation. You have to have a cause. And you must believe in your cause. As Christians, we can have more than one cause, but no cause should be greater than the cause of Jesus Christ in our life. It should be the greatest cause in our lives. Some of you and some of us have political causes, but that should not be a greater cause than our Christian cause. Some of you have certain other causes of life that you're behind. You're, you're against cancer, and so am I. I hate it. And you, you are uh, for a cure to this and for that. And those are all wonderful causes. But no cause should be greater than the cause of Jesus Christ. And, and if there's any indignation, it should be righteous indignation. Indignation because of the cause. Now, where can we get that and where do we get that? Well, first of all, you get it from Jesus, that Jesus had a certain amount of indignation about him. In John chapter 2 and verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Shouldn't we as Christians be loving? Yes, we should. Shouldn't we as Christians be compassionate and caring? Certainly we should. Shouldn't we turn the other cheek? Absolutely. If somebody compels us to go a mile, should we go with them too? We certainly should. All of that is taught. All of that is right. And it's absolutely what Jesus would do. That being said, there is a sense of right. And the sense of devotion to our cause as children of the true and living God is what gives us a little sand in our gizzard. If, if there is not a, a basis and a belief, uh, a, a basis for our belief that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that God is our Creator and the Bible is the Word of God, if, if there is not that basis and strong basis in belief in our life, then we won't have the sand in our gizzard to have the indignation that we ought to have as believers. We ought to have it. Believers should not lay down and let evil in this world take over. Believers should not allow an immoral agenda to take over our school system. The innocence of our children or the heart of our nation, we shouldn't allow it. So many believers have spent so much time wringing their hands and, oh, what is this world coming to? We need to say this world's coming to Jesus and we're going to give the message. It's the sand that's in our our gizzard. We are law-abiding citizens, but we are not without our sense of indignation, and it's pretty easy to do so or be so in these indignant times. Isaiah spoke of the times in which we're living. See if you recognize the year 2016 and the world around you and these words spoken by Isaiah thousands of years ago under the inspiration of God. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call good evil, call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These are indignant times. These are times when that very thing is playing out. These are the times. You've heard me speak of the cancer of cultural relativism that's creeping into what are supposed to be Bible-believing churches. That which only two decades ago was unthinkable in the public classroom is now prominent in many evangelical churches, many churches that, that claim to believe the Bible. Here's what the big issue is today, and I'm, and this is, I'm not trying to make anybody mad or stir anybody up. But here's what, the, here's what the big issue is in the church today. In the church today, the big issue is music. A lot of you would cringe at the music in some churches. But set that aside. I contend that if you go into many of today's congregations and turn off the music, regardless of what the music is, turn it off. If it's rocking out, if it's, if it's purely liturgical, turn off the music and listen to what's being said, and you'll be shocked at what's, 
was once purely sinful that is now culturally acceptable as Christian behavior. It will shock you. Turn the music off and listen to what's being said from the pulpit. And my soul, let us be focused more on what is said from the pulpit than what is heard in the hallway and what is played and so forth and so on. Are those things important? Well, certainly they are. But the reality is that if there is going to be a sense of righteous indignation in these indignant times, it must come, first of all, from the strength of the preaching from the pulpit. Probably most of us have those who are close to us, family, friends, people at work and in other places who are living in the gay culture. I wouldn't ask you to raise your hand, but if I were to ask you, how many of you have somebody close to you, family member, friend, somebody at work, somebody you know, and and I would ask you to raise your hand, I doubt seriously that very many of us would not raise our hand because most everybody knows somebody. However, you don't expect your church to preach and teach something contrary to the, God's Word just to placate the culture, do you? you? You don't expect that. Yet that is exactly what is happening in what we would call evangelical churches around the world. And, and the problem with that is that it's, just, it's that slippery slope that gives a little bit more away. And that is only one example of these indignant times. There are so many indignancies in the world in which we live and and the churches today and the pastors. Look, it's my fault. I'm not blaming you. I'm blaming the collective we in me for not preaching, for not giving you the the strength to, to understand to be finishers in the race uh, and be steadfast in our beliefs, there must be some sense of indignance, especially the indignity of sin. We must have a sense of the indignity of sin. Romans 7, 13 says, Paul says, Did that which is good then bring me to death? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Let me tell you what's happened in the church today. The the extremity or the extremeness of sin has not been that extreme to us. Earlier I said, I'm sure that everyone has uh, somebody that's close to you, you know, et cetera, in the gay lifestyle. Here's, here's, here's what happens in that. Here's what happens in that. Oh, then, okay, we're all, we've all got a frame of reference for this. We've all got a frame of reference for that. I understand our frame of reference, but let me tell you, that doesn't change the fact of sin. It just doesn't change it. We have flipped the script in Christianity today. We have flipped the script in Christian living. Do you know what our question is today. Our question is today is, what's the harm in it instead of what's the good in it? We have totally flipped the script. Look, we were a lot better off when we were more naive regarding the things of the world. Forty years ago, forty, how many years ago? 
43 years ago when I began the ministry, there were, there were things that, that I'd, I'd never even heard of, couldn't possibly fathom, that now is widely discussed and debated as to whether or not it should be Christian culturally acceptable. And the reason is because we've just learned too much about sin, and we've gotten too familiar with it. Here's what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 16, 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, we're just the opposite. We know a lot. Let let me tell you about these teenagers over here. These teenagers know more. They know culturally more and not in a good way. I'm sure they know things in a good way too, but they, cult- they know culturally more than most of you did at age 30. And the reason is because they have, they have been brought up in a world where they are not simple concerning sin. They know. They know. There's, there's a whole different dialogue that goes on in young life that we don't know about. Those of you who are college students, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a whole different cultural life that goes on. And we are no longer simple concerning sin and wise concerning good. We are wise, or we are, we are knowledgeable concerning sin. And we're a little simple concerning good, with a strong foundation and a good understanding of indignation. The person with a steadfast heart should then finally move forward with determination. We're talking about the seven balance points of life, of the spiritual life, and this is steadfastness. This is what we want to get to. We want to run the race with determination. Now, how do you do this? How do you keep going on? When storms and temptations come, on Wednesday nights in our 705 Bible study, we're studying the book of Hebrews, a great book of the Bible. All books of the Bible are great. Hebrews is a great, not often studied book of the Bible. We haven't gotten to the passage, this passage yet, but I want to read it because it tells you how to be steadfast when your legs get weak. Hebrews 12 and verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You know what that's saying? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. What do you got your eyes on? We're watching you, preacher. Bad move. I just like to watch the other people in the church and see what they do. Bad move. 
Well, I'm watching the stock market. Bad move. You got to watch Jesus. You got to turn your eyes upon him. From the book, Good to Great, Jim Collins writes, the coaching staff of a high school cross-country running team got together for dinner after winning its second state championship in two years. The program had been transformed in the previous five years from good, that is the top 20 of the state, to great, consistent contenders for the state championship on both the boys' and the girls' team. I don't get it said one of the coaches. Why are we so successful? We don't work any harder than the other teams, and what we do is just so simple. Why does it work? He was referring to their strategy of running the best at the end. We run best at the end of our workouts. We run best at the end of races. We run best at the end of the season when it counts the most. We just always run the best at the end. Everything is geared to this simple idea. The coaching staff knows how to create this effect of doing your best at the end. Now, how do they do it? Well, they place a coach at the two-mile point of a three-mile or 3.1-mile race. And he's there not to collect data of their speed, but he is there to see how many competitors they pass at the end of the race from mile two to mile 3.1. He doesn't look at their pace. He looks at how many competitors are ahead of them and then where they finish at the end. And here's what the kids learn how to do. They learn how to pace themselves and they learn how to race with confidence. We run the best at the end. That's what they think at the end of of a hard race. We run the best at the end. So if I'm hurting and I'm really struggling, then I know that my competition has to hurt a whole lot more than I do. And so I can pass them because I can run the best at the end. Are you running better today than you once did? Have you determined that I'm not going to fade at the end, I'm going to run best at the end? As you run the race, you'll trip over a lot of people. They'll become stumbling blocks. They'll discourage you or they'll try. They'll talk you down or bring you down or lead you astray. But remember, there is a finish line, and Jesus is waiting for you at the finish line. And run with steadfastness. Run the best at the end. Keep your head up. Keep your pace strong. Keep your face, keep yourself focused on Him and finish the race. Don't quit. Don't stop. With a sense of foundation and a sense of indignation, run with determination that you will finish what you started.